Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gilev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today is another one of our very special one-hour all-Q&A episodes. All right! Yay! Where we entertain tricky questions from our listeners and readers. So, let's jump right in. Sure. Um, Let's start with a question from Graham, who asks... If you had the opportunity to add one class to general education curriculum with the goal of promoting critical thinking, what type of class would it be and why? Logic, philosophy, statistics, etc. Critical thinking. <laughs> okay, you want to you want to talk about what you would teach in this? this yeah, I actually, class? I actually do uh, teach a, a course. Uh, in critical oh, well, this question is easy for you then. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a reason why I teach that class I, because I do think it's important. And in right. fact, one of the first things I did when I moved to uh, Lehman College at uh, the City University of New York was to try to move that class from a 200 level to 100 level. Uh, course, so more that people more would people take could it? take it. Yeah, yeah. and in <clears> fact, <throat> it's now uh, one of the uh, general distribution. It fulfills one of the general um, education distributions, as it should. I think it should actually be mandatory. Yeah. Um, but so, so the reason I answered critical thinking is because it does actually include all of the above. A standard class on critical thinking, you know, people, different people teach it different ways and using different textbooks. But typically, it does introduce a minimum introduction to logic, both formal and informal logic. So formal fallacies and informal fallacies. There's a little background in philosophy, but there's also quite a bit about statistics. I spent, you know, several um, uh, class periods talking about prob- basic probability theory, mm-hmm. basic ways of understanding, analyzing, graphing data. Because those are all the ways in which people get fooled by, uh, you know, mm-hmm. misunderstanding graphs when they're published in, say, the media, or misunderstanding statistics and probabilities. Um, and there's, we talk also about a, a little bit about the, the basics of the scientific method, the difference between, um, uh, you know, blind and double-blind experimental design, for instance. Uh, the idea that uh, you know scientific findings are provisional, that the idea of, of uh, sample size, for instance, and the difference between a sample size and a population—all of these basic concepts of what I would consider uh, philosophical and scientific literacy—that mm-hmm. uh, um, are necessary in order to sort of to understand a little better what it is that happens when we're bombarded by all these sort of information. Uh, from from a variety of sources that we don't know what to make. That's the whole the whole point of the way I introduce it to my students, um, because you know it's hard to get students in, interested in something called critical thinking, uh, typically. It's and, so hard uh, for me to understand why they wouldn't. Yes, be it in is that. hard. I'm not but, being sarcastic. I have a no, hard time no, relating I, to people I, who I, wouldn't be like, "Oh, critical I, thinking." I hear you, but unfortunately, that is the the empirical observation. It's my I empirical know. observation. So the first thing I tell them in the first at the beginning of the first class is, "Guys, this is a course in bullshit detection." 
Oh, oh. that's a nice way to frame it. It makes them feel like savvy exactly. and in the know. You know? Exactly. You know, who wants to be taken advantage of? Nobody. <laughs> so here's a class of where you need to learn to, to uh, decrease the chances that somebody's going to take advantage of you. That's good. What would be your um, choice? Well, so the, the techniques and the concepts that I was thinking about have a lot in common with what you were describing. Uh, I... Uh, I also wanted to include, maybe you do and just didn't mention it, but I wanted to include some basic psychology in there and a discussion mm-hmm. of cognitive biases uh, like the confirmation bias, for example, yep. where you, you know, tend to notice more and seek out information that confirms what you already, what you already know. <clears throat> um, and, and just ways that, that your attention can, you know, you can have selective attention and not notice things uh, just because, you know, people attribute far too much reliability to eyewitness testimony, for example, because they're not aware of right. just how fallible our, our brains are. Richard Wiseman's written some great stuff about this. There's tons of studies. Um, I, I, when I had been thinking about this, I'd been, I'd been envisioning the courses sort of in their traditional divisions, you know, logic, philosophy, psychology, statistics, and so on. And I was just thinking about how I would, I would shift the emphasis in each class from the way they're traditionally taught. So obviously in logic, I would want to spend a lot of time on uh, informal logical fallacies and getting students in the habit of actually being able to recognize them. So I'd want to, I want to get them, you know, every week to have to bring in some example of a logical fallacy or right. like a, a story of, of how they committed, they notice it themselves or someone else committing a logical fallacy just so that they get practice you know, identifying these concepts in the wild, so to speak, because right. I think it's so easy for people to compartmentalize. They learn something in school, they get an A on the test, but they don't think about it outside the context That's of right. the class. In, in um, my class, we play a game called uh, Spot the Logical Fallacy. So oh, nice. I, I, Where do your examples come from? Well, I, I take uh, clips from the evening news ah. uh, from different, different um, uh, stations, and I show them, you know, the same station covering the same item of news, let's say, you know, three, three different stations covering the same item of news, and then we play this game, you know, the first student gets the, the first logical fallacy and can even name it. Uh, gets gets credit, which is oh. something, of course, that gets people interested. And the, the, yeah, that's the, great. The amazing thing is that it takes only a few seconds, <laughs> typically, to spot one. Uh, Studying they're, they're fallacies very, yeah, in their natural common. habitats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was curious why you said uh, you would teach formal logic, because that was something that I had been thinking could could be not dispensed with entirely, but seriously under-emphasized, you know, at the expense of the actual logical fallacies that come up in every day. Oh, I would agree. Um, it certainly is not a big part of, of a critical thinking course, but at the very least, the, lo- the formal logical fallacies. Uh, like? Uh, well, for instance, the, um, the common misunderstanding of, you know, if, if X, then Y not why therefore not x that sort of thing uh yeah um, that's those yeah, you're are, right. that does actually come up in everyday life they a lot. Come yeah. up, exactly. i wasn't thinking of it as a formal fallacy but it is it is yeah. a formal fallacy and so that's um but it does come up so only only as far as those are concerned yeah yeah um with philosophy i i obviously students should have some practice evaluating philosophical arguments defending them and 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 finding weaknesses in them and there are a few key philosophical practices that i think that I've found hugely useful outside of philosophy, like the importance of defining your terms precisely um, and noticing when other people's terms are not defined precisely or when they're using terms in different ways from how you're using them. And the idea of dissolving a question, which we were talking about in the last episode, instead of trying to solve it by by showing how it's incoherent or ill-defined. So I think those are are really useful. 
Um, Unpacking an argument is another concept that is useful in uh, in introductory philosophy classes. What does so that the, mean? Well, so Unpack that means that for me. Yeah, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Unpack that for me. That's right. <laughs> well, really. it comes from a nice ribbon. And it's, it's usually colored uh, red color. <laughs> it's now, a nice mental image. It Unpack. is right. It's, it, yeah. it's, but uh, by unpacking an argument, um, what what is meant is you know somebody can can give uh, what it looks like an argument, a simple argument for something, uh-huh. right? You know, I don't know, abortion is wrong because, and mm-hmm. you fill in the, the, the the blanks. But it turns out that that simple answer actually implies a number of assumptions uh-huh. and it implies a number of other sub-arguments that you can unpack. That is, you can uh-huh. take it out of the box and say, well, okay, oh, wait a minute. Exactly. It comes with baggage that you unpack. Okay. Exactly. And so you can say, together. well, wait a minute. Now, what you said originally actually breaks down into you know three or four different uh, other concepts. And of those, let's start talking about the first one and see if, see if it makes sense or not. So that sort of you know carefully open up and and make uh, evident the complexity behind uh, some arguments that might otherwise uh, sound very simple. Cool. No, that yeah, that's absolutely useful. It's just so sort of general and broad that I wasn't, I I couldn't see it because I was in it, you know, so to speak. <laughs> but um, uh, and then just lastly, for statistics, I, I was a statistics major, and uh, obviously, I think it's woefully underemphasized in, yeah. I mean, at every stage of education, it should, should be taught in high school um, and it should be mandatory. I can think of a number of things that I would sacrifice if I had to, to get statistics in there. Um, but, but I do think that at least for the purpose of developing critical thinking in the general population, there doesn't need to be nearly as much emphasis on the actual doing of the math Right. Uh, yes. And the derivations exactly. and the proofs. I mean, exactly. I would emphasize there's a number of concepts I think are incredibly important and that you can get without having to do more than a little bit of basic math. The difference between correlation and causation, the idea that you don't know that X causes Y just because they're associated. It could be the other way around or they could both be caused by some other variable. Um, the fallacy of, of generalizing from anecdotal evidence. Um, I would want to make sure they understood the concept of a statistical distribution just because I find that a lot of people have trouble with the idea, like, if you tell them the means of two populations are different, they think that everyone in one population right. is higher than everyone in the other population, and so on. And, and also, under what conditions you should expect a distribution to be normally distributed, because that's such an overused concept. Um, yes. That, that, going back to your first um, on, the, on the list, the, um, the difference between causation and correlation, uh, it is so crucial, and yet it's so... Um, under uh, appreciated by, by a lot of people. So I, the, the way I uh, introduce the topic um, to my students is to show them uh, with a graph that there is an absolutely perfect correlation between my age and the expansion of the universe. But, <laughs> but that even That's my cute. ego isn't large <laughs> enough to actually make me say that I caused the expansion of the universe or vice versa, then the, the fact that the universe is expanding causes me to get older. Clearly, nice. there is a common cause. That it's, it's actually uh, uh, controlling both, both uh, um, phenomena. So, yeah, those, those are absolutely crucial. But all of those tend to be, in fact... Um, wrapped up into a sort of general critical thinking classes, okay. all, all these, including the ones that you were talking about earlier, uh, the, the behavioral, the psychology stuff. So we go oh, you got that in there? That's good. Yeah. So, for instance, we go through this uh, really nice video that was actually done at CUNY uh, a few years ago uh, in, a, in a class where uh, suddenly somebody comes into the class and, and snatches a purse, and then students are asked to describe that person. Oh. 
Oh wow, that's great! Uh, and then they're asked to recognize that person among a certain you know number of a suspects lineup. Yeah. in a lineup. And it turns out, of course, that it, it, it's actually remarkable. Ninety percent of the students got at least one of the crucial details wrong. And just uh, crucial details like like what like hair color, color of the or? skin, you know, <gasps> uh, length of length of the, uh, the 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 hair, what the guy was was wearing when he got, got into the class. It's, it's amazing. And, and I it assume really it was a well lit class, and they yes, were absolutely. they were stationary, and he didn't like come up behind them. Uh, nope, absolutely, it was very wow. very visible, and uh, so that gets across the point that well, white witness testimony, although we psychologically, uh, intuitively think that it is the, the highest, you know, most reliable highest standard kind of, of evidence, right? In fact, it's one yeah. of the lowest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very cool. Um, let's go on to a question from Kevin, who asked us for our thoughts on, quote, the merits and demerits of analytic versus continental philosophy. Oh, boy. We've, yeah. <laughs> uh, we I guess we've sort of touched show. on this before, we but have, actually, yes. do you want to just briefly explain the difference? Well, let's, let's, um, um, so historically, uh, the, the difference between um, analytic and continental philosophy is actually very recent. Uh, continental mm-hmm. philosophy refers to a style, style of doing philosophy that originated on the continent, meaning Europe. France and Germany, mostly, Mostly right? France yeah. and Germany. Uh, versus analytic philosophy, which is something actually that, that with that term, involved even more recently than that. It's 20th, 20th century um, sort of thing. We're talking about people like Bertrand Russell, G. Moore, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's typically, it started out in Britain and then the United States. Uh, now, that said, so first of all, what is the major difference between the two? Well, the um, continental style is more um, sort of an essay style. Uh, there's really not, there, there is no rigorous argument. There isn't a, these are the premises, these are my assumptions, and these are the conclusions that I derive from and those. here are the potential counter arguments, and here's right. why they don't apply in these cases. And, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's more of an essay. It's a discursive essay. It's based on, on a lot of anecdotal um, um, information. It's based on, you know, uh, there is an argument, obviously, because this, if you write something, presumably you're trying to make a point, and you're trying to make a point by uh, adducing reasons for why you think that is a good point. But it is more more journalistic in style, if you want, in, in, in some sense. Uh, it can be very elaborate. I mean, yeah, these are, these it's often people... very indirect, I find. I mean, I have not looked at... I looked at just enough to know that I didn't want to look at more. But uh, the argumentation is often pretty indirect. Like, they'll talk for a long time about various things without it really being obvious right. why they're talking about those things. Right, and there are good examples of it and not so good examples of it. I mean, the... Probably, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, I have to, as a disclaimer, I have to say that I'm much, much more sympathetic to the analytic tradition than, than to the uh, continental tradition. But within should... the continental tradition, for instance, you know, Nietzsche or, mm-hmm. uh, or Sartre would be, uh, I think, good examples. I mean, those, those are people that I can read from, sure, even from yeah. an analytic perspective and get something out of it. A little less good examples, in my opinion, are people like Derrida and some, although not all, uh, Foucault uh, sure, sure. writings. So that's just to give you an idea. Now, that said, however, the, the analytic, so-called analytic tradition, even though it's very recent, um, comparatively speaking, it actually does connect to uh, pretty much all of the classical Western philosophy. I mean, even though we don't think of Aristotle or Plato 
uh, or any, anybody between the ancient Greeks and uh, Bertrand Russell as analytic, properly speaking, because of the, co the term was not around and the contrast was not around mm -hmm. with, the, with the continental school. Um, the analytic tradition is, in fact, the kind of philosophy, as we said earlier, based on formal arguments and counter-arguments, mm -hmm. analysis of the assumptions, and so on and so forth, that you can really find all the way back to at least Aristotle, and in fact, arguably, uh, the pre-Socratic philosophers. So it's really philosophy in the sort of classical sense. To that, we probably should add that the continental tradition, at least some parts of the continental tradition, begin to sound to me a lot like uh, sort of some kind of Eastern philosophy, <laughs> where there's no, uh, for instance, some Wittgenstein. You know, uh, the late Wittgenstein doesn't really... He was really, kind of a mystic. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, you know, if you read, if you read what end. he wrote, it, it's a sort of mm -hmm. series of short um, paragraphs Without any, any argument, without any, they're he's just telling you something. Almost like cones, right? like, yes. or parables, almost. That exactly. he had this this idea that you, the things you were talking about were not things that could actually be stated explicitly. They had right. to sort of be understood indirectly. Like, all, you know, you can't right. you can't see something directly. You have to like see it out of the corner of your eye, almost. Right, and, and that to, uh, that to me starts sounding very, very close to you know the classic yeah. example from Buddhist literature, for instance. That's you know, what, fair. what is the sound of a a one hand clapping sort of <laughs> stuff, right? Which sounds silly. It actually there is a point there. It's supposed to is there? to yeah, well, it's allegedly. All right. <laughs> you're you're supposed to be starting thinking in an unusual way about what is the meaning of the of the example. Not the, the idea is not to provide an answer to the actual question. Um, and it sounds to me like a lot of the um, well, maybe not a lot, but some of the. Uh, continental tradition gets in the, veer in that direction, particularly Wittgenstein. Yeah, it's ironic that Wittgenstein, is, given his mystic leanings, inspired like the most you know unmystic, most concrete focused, and and um, attempted like rigor in philosophy in the positivists. That yes, you know that's right. Well, uh, the other thing that I find uh, ironic about Wittgenstein is that one of his one of my favorite quotes from Wittgenstein says something on the lines that the the, the job of philosophy is to um, uh, free ourselves from the bewitchment of language. Right, right. And this is one of the most obscure philosophers yeah. Yeah, of all time. True. So it's there's some it's irony. True. There. But he's the one who I think he was the one who originally came up with the whole idea of dissolving the question. Or, I'm sure he wasn't yep. the first to use that technique, but he was the first to right. you know, describe it and like formalize it as a technique. Right. Well, there is this famous <clears throat> um, uh, encounter, which is sort of uh, has gone into mythical proportions at this point, between uh, uh, Wittgenstein and Karl Popper, who was, of course, oh, yeah? one of the most um, prominent uh, philosophers. Much. Yes. <laughs> uh, Popper, of course, was one of the most prominent philosophers of the 20th century, particularly in philosophy of science. And, uh, very so, unmystical. Very unmystical, yeah. absolutely. And uh, so the, the the incident that I'm about to recount is is actually uh, explained in great detail, together with the background of both the individuals and their their philosophies, in a book that came out a few years ago, um, co-written by two uh, BBC journalists, and it's called the book is called Wittgenstein Poker. And the reason for that is because here's, here's how allegedly it went. Of course, um, the journalists actually talked to people who were there. And we're still alive. And there, there are different accounts of what actually happened. But here's allegedly what happened. Uh, Bertrand Russell, who was, in fact, Wittgenstein's mentor, uh, had invited for a seminar Popper. And Wittgenstein showed up at the seminar. And there was very uh, well-known sort of acrimony between, between the two. They had very different ideas about uh, philosophy and philosophical questions in general. Sorry, between Bertrand Russell and... Oh, no, Popper and Wittgenstein. Popper said, and Wittgenstein, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, and uh, so at some point, Wittgenstein apparently became more and more agitated um, 
it and and uh, started playing with this with a with a poker for the fireplace and then the big started, iron the big poker? iron thing right and then and then pointed it to Popper uh, saying something like give me an example of <gasps> uh, you know, a mortal injunction or something like, along those lines like, which Popper allegedly again answered thou shall not threaten a guest lecture with poker <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic oh that, so, that's the kind of story that's just too good to actually look into that's to, right to check up on <laughs> that's right but it, the, the book is interesting because it, it does give several reconstructions of the story uh but more importantly it gives you an interesting background in the, the whole 20th century philosophy the split between the uh, uh, the uh, continental and the in the uh, analytic tradition, as well as the background of the two um, uh, contenders, because they were both both actually from Vienna, uh, in, in Austria. One from a middle class family uh, who had to struggle to get a university and so on, Popper, and another one from a very wealthy family uh, that was Wittgenstein. So it was, uh, you know, they grew up in the same uh. area, but they they have very different backgrounds, very different uh, personal histories and so on. But the, but they shall thou thou shall not try uh, lectures. <laughs> I guess like she's in a poker. It's precious. Even if it probably didn't happen exactly. <laughs> it did. It did. Let's just all agree that it did. Um, you know, all of the examples of philosophy that I really admire are analytic, I'd say. You know, I really value rigor and careful reasoning. Um, but but the flip side of that coin is that the most frustrating conversations I've had have also been with analytic philosophers. Um, and I think the Me reason... Too. Yeah. Well, you don't talk to many continental philosophers, so there's no, a selection true. bias, but... Um, I guess same for me as well. But uh, but the the what's going on there, I think, is that the analytic philosophers are supposed to be playing by the same rules as I am. They're supposed to be playing by the rules of argumentation of you know logic right. and and evidence that I'm playing by. Um, they seem like they're speaking my language, and so when I get into these these just massive, just fundamental disagreements with them, where I think that they're just talking nonsense you know right. it feels like much more of a betrayal right. of of what philosophy is supposed to be doing than no, and the content of philosophers i've already written off i'm like oh they're artists let's you know think right. of them as artists that's that's, that's, that's yeah. true it's a good way to put it um i i experienced exactly the same kind of frustration especially coming from a science background where you certainly don't engage in that kind of discussion in in, in that sort of way um, but but one has to give sort of a charitable interpretation to what's going on there. Yeah, we have to understand that philosophers, particularly uh, analytic philosophers, are really people who like they love language and they love logic and they love puzzle solving. So it's like yeah. arguing with somebody who is interested in puzzle solving, and you and you um, you very quickly get into very tiny details. No, I'm, I mean I'm talking about really fundamental, like like I've had conversations with uh, philosophers at you know tenured positions at like great universities who will argue that certain things are inherently good or inherently beautiful and if people disagree then they're just wrong you know and i and to me that doesn't make doesn't make any sense to I, you can talk about your reaction to things as a reaction of of moral approval or a reaction of aesthetic pleasure but to attribute that reaction to reify it as like an objectively existing property in the thing so you, so you don't think that it is objectively true that Beethoven is a better artist than Britney Spears? I don't know what you mean by better. Okay, we should not go That's down this road. That's going to be a different okay. discussion. That's right. All right. <laughs> we'll leave that be. Uh, let's go on to another question before we start coming to blows. Um, yes. How about, how about this question from Ian Pollock? He, he gives a, a thought experiment. So he says, okay, imagine that there is a severe drought in the isolated country of Example Stan, which is great. Oh, I know where that is. Uh, yeah, yep. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so I think they have trolleys there. <laughs> yes, um, they do. <laughs> so in example stand, people are on the brink of dying of thirst. <clears throat> Two people, A and B, live in a wealthy, distant country. Person A travels to example stand and sells water for $100 a bottle. Mm-hmm. Person B stays at home. Why do we, uh, by we, I assume he means typical people, want to condemn person A when person B has actually done less to help the example standees? Oh, well, first of all, that's a, that is a big assumption right there. You know, that people actually would condemn person um, You don't a. think that's a realistic assumption? I don't necessarily think so. Now, if you ask... Isn't if, there a name for that? Like, in, when natural disasters happen in the U.S., and there's, there's a name... I can't remember the name for this, but... There's like a derogatory term that we use yes. when people, you know, go and try to sell blankets to the survivors of a hurricane for profiteering. Profiteering, yeah, right. that's what it. Right. So I would think that that person is a, definitely a profiteer, um, okay. and therefore not particularly morally uh, uh, sort of um, uh, showing a positive moral, moral trait. But I could also argue equally that well, person B isn't doing anything at all, and he's probably in, indifferent let's say, to the, to the catastrophe, which doesn't make him particularly good in my, my mind either. Now, if you were comparing person A versus person C, where C is somebody who sends $100 to help the population right, of examples, then, right, then, right. I mean. then we're talking something seriously. <laughs> but no, perhaps Ian is right, that that, that would be a common um, intuition that people have. Um, and of course, the answer, the, the 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 reasoning behind that intuition is because the person questioning, you know, uh, person A, is not going there to help; is going there to make a buck. Now, there is nothing wrong about making a buck, but the idea here is that somebody is exploiting a tragedy, and therefore is trying to make a buck out of people who are in a particularly vulnerable uh, situation, you know, without water in this particular case. Uh, which most people find, including me, morally reprehensible. It's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, I, I'd rather not hang around with people, with person A in this case. Right. And then, and yet we don't have the intuition that it's reprehensible to not even bother to help at all. Like, no, I think we do. Uh, I think it's a matter of how not much. Rep- much yes, mean. exactly. It's a, it's, it's a matter of degree, right? So, yeah, I think that if somebody were to say, uh, to say person B, well, you didn't send any money to help out, and not only that, but tonight you just splurged a uh, hundred dollars on a you know fancy dinner that you really didn't need. Well, I can think that one can make an argument that that Maybe. person could be a little more concerned. But I you kind of have to force yourself to think that way, though. That is not like a natural way for us to think. I mean, given that most people around us live that way, and we're not constantly going around automatically feeling condemnatory of other people. No, that is true. But but the the reason we don't feel compelled. And we shouldn't, in fact, feel compelled to help all the time is because there's simply too many opportunities to help and not enough resources that we have. But, and, but right? pretty much all of us have – we're well above the level of resources that you – know, Yes, we, we are. But even – but even sounds like uh, the whole you can't solve the problem, therefore you don't need to do anything kind no, of argument. that's not where I was going. Okay. Uh, but th- that is a good point. A lot of people do think that way. Uh, but even somebody like Peter Singer, for instance, who is a, a consequential utilitarian and, and who actually does personally give a lot of, of his money uh, away for, for charitable causes, even he argues that um, you know, if it's a matter of – 
of making yourself miserable, you probably in order to help others, you probably shouldn't do it. You should do whatever you feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if you do something, it is significantly better than nothing. So the person who is culpable here in some sense is the person who does nothing under any circumstances not in this particular case of example stand you know you can say well i'm going to skip example stand but the next disaster or or the last disaster i did help Mm -hmm. if you never do it then presumably most people would agree that there is some moral culpability there but not as much as the profiteer so one reason that I thought this question was so serendipitous is that it actually is a nice parallel to a discussion you and I were having, not on the podcast, just at dinner a while ago, about hiring a maid from another country with a low standard of living, right. um, a low cost of living, and um, and paying her low wages. So like, So the question is... If you're providing, one argument would go, if you're providing an opportunity, you're not forcing anyone to do anything. You're just saying, hey, if if you prefer taking this low-paying job with me to right. not having a job, then the option's yours. Um, how can that be making someone worse off if you're just giving them an extra op- option that they don't have to take? Um, then the other option, or the other um, viewpoint is that I suppose it's exploitative or unfair and therefore morally right. culpable. Right. Um, and, and you said course, you had is, sort uh, of a virtue ethicist I have a virtue ethicist perspective on that. Well, first of all, there is the Broadway perspective on that. Which Broadway, is, you know, the, Yeah, there's a famous song, Everybody Ought to Have a Maid. <laughs> uh, oh, <laughs> right. A, Funny thing happened on the way to the exactly, forum. I was in that's that. That's exactly right. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I was one of the Were you the maid? <laughs> no, no, I was one of the Gemini twins. Oh, anyway, okay. <laughs> But anyway, on. Broadway aside, um, I think the argument can be made that... Um, this is certainly this certainly doesn't rank among the highest moral crimes, you know, to hire a maid or hire service for that for that um, help for that kind okay, that kind of service. But it is a form of exploitation because what you're doing is you're taking advantage of the fact that some people have so few resources and uh, you know so few availability of other jobs for so uh, you know little level of education or whatever, or they're immigrants and they don't have resources and material resources that. They will take the kind of job that almost nobody else, in fact, will take. That is but, a form of, of exploitation. But uh, so then the question is, is exploitation wrong if you're making the person better off than they were? That's why it's the, I, I count it as a low-level, uh, you know, sort of moral, uh, rather low-level moral issue as opposed to, say, the profiteering. I think it's worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, you're helping the person. You're still exploiting, in a way. So you're doing some good, but first of all, you may not be doing it in order to do good. You're just doing it because you want somebody to do your laundry. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a difference on, on, about wh- why you do it and how you do it. But at any rate, even if you are, in fact, helping somebody who does need help, the argument can still be, be made that that person needs help because there's some structural problem at a societal level that puts some people in a position of, of that sort. Oh, sure, I mean, you sure. Can, you know, but that's the, not your personal fault. Well, if you're a member of society, it is in part your fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it's not entirely, certainly not entirely your fault. But I mean, from there, you can make mm-hmm. a very short stop to, uh, step to go into, you know, why not slavery? If, if somebody says, look, I, I've, I'm such a bad situation that I, I'm willing to become your slave if you just give oh. me, you know, housing and food. Well, because um, that would why be, that, that, well, then they'd be making the decision not just for themselves, but for their future self who may not actually agree with that decision. Well, the same is true for the maid. The maid no, can, but she can, can quit. quit at any, exactly. Quit, That's the, totally quit. different. Well, but, but the, the maid uh, has to, can, can make the decision at, the, at this point, right? 
and then in the future can re- revoke that decision. So can the slavery. The slavery can be indenture, can be provisionary, right? Can be, it doesn't oh, have, you, oh, have, you don't see. have to think so of, the, right? the idea is like, you let me stay at your house and I'll just work for free. That's the for kind of slavery you're talking about. Okay, exactly. got it. Or, you know, for a year, I'll sign up for a, <clears throat> for a year or five years or whatever it is. Uh, and I'll be your slave for that period of time. Now, I'm not mm. suggesting that those are the same situation, but what I'm saying is it's not that far of a step. And clearly in the case of the slavery, even that provisional slavery, we would agree that that is an unacceptable level of exploitation. I don't know. I mean, if you're letting someone stay at your house for free and they don't, you know, and they prefer that to whatever situation they were in, um, but see, this, like this, I see that it's exploitative. The idea of but that's the problem. The idea of preferring assumes... Uh, that the person actually has a has viable alternatives and b is in, is capable of choosing viable alternatives. Neither one of those may apply, right? The person could be, you know, for instance, not educated enough to understand a possible alternatives, or they may not be other alternatives. Well, if they're okay, if they aren't mentally competent in making the decision, then sure, you, you know, you can't. Then all of the arguments about them freely choosing sort of fall apart. But if they, I mean. To Correct. say that they don't have any other But I'm, I'm not talking just about mental capacity. I'm talking just about education. I mean, there are Oh, sure. Well, that's right. why I was sort of... That was an umbrella term. But, I mean, if to say that, that it doesn't count as a free choice if they don't have other options. I mean, the, yeah. the other option <laughs> is whatever their state would be if you didn't give them Starve. this option. I mean, that's, 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 that hardly counts as an option. I mean, the, the, so, what I'm saying is that the, the whole idea about these kind of, of problems is... Um, Often people take it to be that, well, it's her decision. Mm-hmm. So in some sense that it sort of takes the, the moral culpability out of me. You know, she, she, she chose freely. It depends on what you mean by freely, and it depends on how free that decision actually was. If the decision is highly constrained uh, because of external circumstances or, or, or whatever, education, access to other resources, access to other possibilities, then it's really not free. I mean, if your well, choice is you eat this this uh, bowl of soup or you jump out of the window, you say, "Well, you have the choice of jumping out of the window." Fine, but you know that's not much of a choice. Well, I would buy that argument more if it weren't the case that that we don't actually penalize people for for not saving the woman from poverty. Like, okay, so here's the weird the weird thing is that we don't that yeah, was convoluted. Here's the weird thing: <laughs> the weird thing is that we don't judge someone harshly if they. If they neglect to, you know, take the poor starving woman out of poverty and, and give her money that she needs to survive. But we do judge someone harshly if if that person offers that woman a deal that allows them, the woman, to get out of her awful situation. So it just, like, well, if you're I, saying I, that she's, that making the choice doesn't count as a free choice because she's going to starve otherwise, but you don't actually judge people harshly if they let her starve, then... Right. So I think that the difference between... That's a good point, but I think that the difference between the two cases um, is one of societal responsibilities versus individual responsibilities. So so let's say you can say, well, I have a a moral responsibility to help homeless people in in New York. Yes, I do. But I can't do that individually because there's simply too many of them. Uh, So what I do is I pay taxes and I vote for politicians that actually help funneling funds to solve that kind of problem, or at least ameliorate that kind of problem. So I'm a, I am, in fact, helping just indirectly because this is a societal-level problem. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about an individual relation, so you're coming to my house and you say, well, I'm starving to death, and I say, oh, okay, well, I can give you a piece of bread and, and, uh, and a mattress, and uh, as a, in exchange for that, you're going to be my slave for the next year, 
Now we're entering a personal relationship. Now it's, now it's no longer just a societal background. Now it's I am directly exploiting your situation more actively. It's, in some sense, it's the difference, and which is why, I, I, as, you, as you pointed out earlier, I'm coming to this from a virtuosity perspective. In some sense, not, not exactly, but in some sense, this is the same difference that there is between two of the classic versions of the trolley dilemma. The, the one situation where in order to, five the, to save the five people, you divert the uh, trolley on a different track, killing one person, mm-hmm. but you do that indirectly by pulling a lever. And the second version, you actually throw somebody out of a bridge to block the, the, uh, the trolley. Most people, uh, as it turns out, as a, as a matter of empirical fact, would do the, the, the switch. They would throw the switch in the first case, but they wouldn't throw the person out in the second case. The difference between those two cases is that the second action is much more personal. Right. Now, as I said, the analogy is only partial in this case because we're actually talking about, in the case of the maid, we're talking about a societal, societal problem versus an individual transaction. But I think that the same kind of intuition is there. No, There's it the is, more, yeah, because right? the utilitarian thing to do, you know... In if both you're, cases, if you have to save. Uh, what? In both cases, you have to save the, to, to, to save the five people if you're a utilitarian. Uh, oh, sorry. I, I just meant if your choice is between... Uh, well, yeah, right, right. If your choice is between... Um, doing this distasteful thing of, you know, pushing the man off the bridge or this distasteful thing of offering the woman a very low-paying, exploitative job um, versus not doing anything, the utilitarian thing to do is the former because, you know, people end up better off. But it's really distasteful to us. So, right. so right. I do see the, the similarity there between yeah. the utilitarian and the virtue ethicist right. um, the, the difference comes into a matter of, you know, personal integrity and the way you deal with it when you relate to other people directly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there's generally speaking a close connection between the kind of character that someone displays and, and whether their, <clears throat> their actions have a, a good or bad effect on the world. But then you get these weird cases in which there's a disconnect, and I think that's where we, we get into these paradoxical situations. Um, let's, let's change direction a little bit now. Uh, we got a, an anonymous question from someone who asked, I recently attended a religious seminar where they made a very compelling argument for the divine origin of the Bible. Oh, the, I want to hear that. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, let me lay it out. The argument goes as follows. The Torah says that we are not allowed to eat animals that have cloven hooves and don't chew their cud. And we're not allowed to eat animals that don't have cloven hooves and do chew their cud. And the Torah says that there are four animals that meet at least one of those descriptions, um, the pig, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, which I had never heard of. It's an interesting looking animal. Um, so the, the question is, why would the, um, the person making this argument, the, I guess the religious scholar or rabbi, make this claim? Why would he go out on a limb and make this claim, which if falsified, would falsify the whole book? Um, or I guess the Torah makes that claim, right? So uh, assuming that this claim is actually scientifically true about there only being four animals that fit this description, um, which, uh, you know, they claim it is. Um, what is wrong with their argument that this is good evidence for the divine origin of the Bible, right. given that it's, it's this falsifiable prediction that hasn't been falsified? Right. So there, there are a couple of things that are wrong. The first one is that, in fact, it is, it is the claim is empirically false. false. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. I looked into that, too. Uh, there are a couple of places where this is it's pretty ballsy pretty for them to still be making it, actually. Well, it's, I think it's pretty sloppy, <laughs> as a matter of fact. It means that they haven't read their own book. Um, and for instance, I found a couple of quotes, but one is from Deuteronomy 14.7, where it says, as the... As the camel and the hare and the coney, for they chew the cud but divide not the hoof. The and coney is the um, the rock badger, I guess. I guess so. Okay. But the point is that the hare, for the hare, this is wrong on both counts because hares don't chew the cud and they do divide the hoof. 
They so, don't. Oh, right, right, right. So I guess the right. So one of the mistakes was that the book claims that hairs chew their cud. Right. But they don't. Exactly. So, right. exactly. so, <clears throat> so empirically, it's wrong. And there are several other examples yeah. of, of other contradictions, I, both in I the Old Testament and the New One, so it's nice. Yes, go ahead. Oh, I found um, another animal to, well, even if those four animals were, did actually fit those descriptions, which they don't, I found a, a fifth, um, the hippopotamus. Ah, it has um, cloven hoof and does not chew its cud. That's right. Take that Torah. And there are several others. You know, you yeah. can, it, our, our listeners can easily find other examples sure. because there's plenty of websites on that. So, right. so the, the empirical is wrong. Now, right. what about the, the, the general argument, right? right? So the argument there is um, if everything that this book says is right, that is indication that God wrote or inspired Wait, the uh, book. Wait, sorry, everything or just this claim... Well, right. this claim is part of everything, right? Oh, okay. I was just wondering right. which one. Which so let's thing let's you're start with this at. particular claim. Okay. okay, if you want to just limit it to that particular claim, although I don't see why the same logic wouldn't apply to every other claim in in the in the Bible or in the Old Testament. Well, right. I, I don't know. it seems pick, like different right. strength of argu- of evidence if. If they make a ton of predictions that all turned out to be true and they had no way of knowing at yes. the time that they would turn out to be true, that's, that's right. much stronger than one prediction that turned out right. to be true. So should we give them the best argument possible, which is if all the predictions, the, all the statements in the, in the Old Testament are true, oh. that is a pretty good argument in favor of the existence of God, right? Uh, I'd say it's a pretty good argument in the favor of the existence of something fishy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, by the same argument, um, if you happen to pick up any book of, say, science... In, in the library, oh. right, that makes all factual statements uh, that are, in fact, turn out to be correct, what are you to conclude of, out of that, of that statement? Oh, but I think the key here was that they had no way of knowing. I mean, they, they sure. hadn't traveled the whole world. They only, sure. you know, they, for all they knew, there, there could have been sure. so um, suppose plenty that, of other animals discovered that, you know, exceeded their list of four. Right. So suppose that a, that a biologist makes, uh, write a, writes a book about biodiversity and, and makes a guess, say, uh, within that book and says, you know, and I think that the number of, total number of species in the world is two and a half million. He doesn't actually know that that is the case. Turns out that, that is correct. What would you think about that biologist? I got lucky. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, as you pointed out earlier, however, if you, now if you multiply that by hundreds or thousands of claims, right. then the argument becomes stronger and stronger. It means that something fishy, as you put it, was going on. Now, does that all in, therefore say, say something about gods? No, because the book could have been written or inspired by, say, you know, an advanced civilization who just happened to visit Earth and had a pretty good knowledge of zoology of the planet and uh, inspired that knowledge into the local, you know, violated the, the prime directory, uh, directive and, uh, and actually wrote the book or dictated <laughs> the book, right? So this is, in fact, the same exact problem that there is with any intelligent design argument. That is, the, the typical, the standard intelligent design argument is, if I show you that there's something you cannot currently explain with, you know, scientific knowledge or with common sense or whatever it is, then the inference is there must have been a, a, a god that, that did it or intelligent designer. Yes, well, there might have been an intelligent designer. I would grant you that inference. But that inference has nothing about the intelligent designer being a god, number one, and certainly even less so. Uh, it, it implies that the particular the, the god is the particular one you like. What if it was Zeus? Maybe Zeus wrote the book. Right, right, right. Yeah, <clears throat> that's one of the more annoying um, maneuvers that I encounter 
that whole, you know, well, you can't explain X, therefore God. Yes. Um, we should and have a the, name for that fallacy, actually, just because it's so common and compact. Well, actually, it, it's a, it, you could discover it as a number of different fallacies, one of which is the non sequitur. It simply doesn't follow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right? I don't know, from, I see that. From, the, from the premises of the argument, the conclusion simply doesn't, doesn't, sure. doesn't follow. So it's a, it's a classic logical fallacy. Uh, I, we should also probably talk about the fact that when you're looking at the ratio of hits to misses um, of some predictor, you have to take into account what you would have counted as a hit if it had happened. So, you know, people are are pretty good at coming up with ex post facto rationalizations for why, like, oh, no, that wasn't actually a failure of the theory, you know? Like, so the hippopotamus, I think, is is it related to the pig? I don't remember. Let's say it's related to the pig. And... uh, or like distantly related to the pig. If I wanted to maintain confidence in my theory of the divine origin of the Torah, I could just say, well, it's really the same animal. I mean, you know, when they said four animals, they didn't mean these four specific species. They meant the four, um, kinds. Thank you. Yes. I don't know the exact (laughs) biological jargon, but yeah. So, I mean, when you're looking at how, um, how falsifiable a theory is, um, how much, uh, how much it puts itself out there and and puts itself at risk of being falsified. Um, that that's sort of a, an important criteria when you you take into account how good its evidence is when it's not falsified. Right. But if if you know that people are going to be able to easily find ways to explain why no matter what it wasn't falsified, then you have to sort of retroactively reduce your you know. Popper had, had actually. This is Popper, right? Yes, right. Is, Popper yeah. had a, had uh, presented this argument, and I think it's a, it's a pretty convincing one uh, about he put it in the, in terms of. It's important that a theory sticks Stick its, its neck, neck out. out I, right? was, so I had that image it. in my mind when, <laughs> yeah. So if you make image. very specific predictions, and a lot of them, uh, that it's the much better test of the theory than if you just make few predictions in the kind of generic, uh, the generic kind, yeah. because you can always reinterpret it. Before we leave this argument, uh, uh, this particular topic, however, I have another example that actually has only indirectly to do with the question, with, with the question itself, but it is my Don't favorite let that example. Stop you. <laughs> no, I, it won't. Um, it, is, uh, it is another example of a mistake in the Bible, except in this case, it's in the New Testament. And it's Matthew 13, 31, 32. It's my favorite example because it's a botanical one. And, you know, my background is in plant biology. Right. So the, the quote says, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree. There's two problems with that. First of all, smaller, uh, there, are, there are species, plenty of species of plants that have smaller seeds than mustards. For instance, oh, orchids. Right. Mm-hmm. Significantly smaller, in fact. And second of all, masters don't grow into trees. That's what I was wondering. I, I, that's sort of so that that's, caught an um, eyebrow of mine. So yeah. much for the biology of the Bible. Right. Yes. Um, let's go to a question. Uh, okay, this <clears throat> this is a question, actually a follow up after our last Q and A, um, in which someone asks if it's if it's possible to compartmentalize your rationality. So you have one irrational belief, for example, which you don't question or challenge, and then to still be really rational in other domains. So scientists who are religious is one you know, obvious example. And my response uh, at the time was that it makes me trust a person, a person less if I know that they compartmentalize like that, because it means that when they don't like an answer to a question, then they might choose to deceive themselves. So how do I know that they're not doing that in other cases too? Whereas someone who bites the bullet and accepts claims for, for which there is good evidence, even when they wish that things were different, 
someone like that clearly values having true beliefs very highly. So I have more, more trust in their process of reasoning and their conclusions all around. Anyway, that's the argument I gave. And then this commenter named Jim Lippard replied, he said, I have a comment on Julia's position of preference for those who don't compartmentalize at all. One area where I think human beings value stability and constant, uh, consistency, despite evidence, is in ethical behavior and in particular personal loyalty. Successful interpersonal relationships require, I think, a certain degree of tolerance for each other's flaws and faults and placing trust in people where it's probably not fully deserved. So, right. But that wouldn't really <clears throat> affect your argument, right? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I have to say to that is that I think Jim is conflating two different meanings of the word trust here. Right. When I used it, it was in the context of trusting someone's process of reasoning, trusting someone to have true beliefs, whereas he's using it basically to mean trusting someone to be loyal and constant in their love or in their, you know, um, uh, reliable, basically. So two two very different meanings. Um, but but never. So you just unpacked the the, the, the concept of trust there, <laughs> and find and, and pointed out in fact that there are two very different meanings of it. And if you use the same word into two different contexts, then that can generate confusion. Right. And did you see that with my hands, I was making this unpacking yep. motion while yes, I was you're becoming I just a true with all that yes. gesticulation. Oh, yes, I know. Uh, <laughs> we should do a video podcast one of these days. <laughs> we, we should. Um, oh, but but I I did think that he raised. Uh, somewhat indirectly, this important question of whether some amount of self-deception is actually beneficial. So whether being epistemically irrational in an interpersonal relationship, especially, I guess, a close one or a romantic one, is actually instrumentally rational in the sense of being in your self-interest. Oh, I think, um, I think that's true. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that that is the case. Um, yeah. There is, you know, in such, what ways? Well, there's such there's research on the so-called optimist bias, um, where uh, showing that people who tend to overestimate their chances of doing things, or their uh, ability to accomplish things, or they have a positive, more positive view of life than is warranted by the facts. They actually do better. They are less stressed. They they live longer, a uh, number of years, in fact, longer than than other people, and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, the most objective people about the world tend to be depressed, as in clinically depressed. I have heard that, yeah. Because oh. they have a very good assessment, in fact, of how bad things really are. So I think that there is a sense in which uh, some level of deception or self-deception is, in fact, adaptive. But I wouldn't call it rational. So oh, I meant, well, right? I was trying to distinguish between epistemically right. rational in the sense of, you know, a process that leads you towards the truth about the world versus instrumentally rational in right. the sense of a process that, it, you know, improves your, maximizes your utility right. or it gets would, you whatever would, goals you want. Yeah, I would refer to that as, you know, useful uh, or, okay, uh, well, you say, term. instrumental. Right. Yeah. Well, because, the, the, again, the, the, well, this is a similar problem to the one that you pointed out just a minute ago, which is if we use the same word, but we mean in very different. I mean, you made you made clear what the, the difference was in your in your case. But often people say, "Oh, but isn't it rational?" Oh, sure. To oh my God, that? the word right. "rational." I have gotten burned so many times by because right. people have they have such a different definitions, but also different associations with it that right. I just. I'm, I'm actually trying to, to wean myself off of it. I'm so used to using it. But I'm just trying to find synonyms for all of the different meanings and just use those synonyms instead. Yeah, exactly. So in that sense, I think that there is a. Um, so epistemically uh, valuable sense of rationality where um, you can say, well, it is, it is rational to assess the world for what it is, um, meaning that if you want a rational understanding of the world, you want the facts and you want the closest that you can get. You want the knowledge that is most reliable. You want the, the information as, as best that you can, you can get it. And then what you do with it, it's a different matter. So there's, an, yeah, there's another difference there between 
uh, rationality as in whatever brings you, whatever practices, epistemic practices bring you the best information about the world. And then there is a difference with, with you know, what do you do with that information? It may be the most instrumentally rational thing to do is to ignore it mm-hmm. uh, or to, you know, do... Uh, uh, not taking uh, 100% for what it, for what it actually is and sort of acting in a different way. But I, again, I wouldn't call I really wouldn't use that word rationality there because it has a very different connotation. Well, you know, that's that's how economists use the word rational in terms of acting in your own self-interest. And you know how much I trust economists. <laughs> it's not a matter of trust. It's just words are defined by how people use them. Okay, we won't go down that tangent. No, no. But, but for instance, let's, uh, it's, you, it is interesting you brought up econ- economics because, as you know, we talked about this in the past, there's at least two major ways of doing economic theory these days. The, the, the one is sort of the classical way, the classical theory that is based on rational agents, on the idea of rational agents with access, reliable access to information. Well, and then I mean, there is the idea of behavioral economics. Right? Yeah, but okay, just to be fair to economists, the, the model of the rational actor who has complete information and, and markets are perfectly liquid and all that, that's sort of like the, the model that they start with. And then they start tweaking the assumptions to make them more realistic uh, to see what happens. But it, I, I do think it's still useful to have like this bare bones model that you then adapt to you know how the world actually well, is. It you sort of have to start. It depends on how you tweak it. It depends on how you adapt it. If, if you adapt it by doing you know data fitting, then I don't think it's particularly useful. Um, but if you if you tweak it in the in the if you start from scratch and say, look, actually human beings don't behave rationally in that sense most of the time. So let's let's take a look from the social sciences. Uh, we have data about how human beings actually behave. And why don't we do put that into the model to begin with? As it turns out, human beings don't act as rational well, of agents. Course. Most yeah, of the no, time. I just I I think it's a straw man to say that economists don't know that, or that some economists don't know that. No, I'm not sure that they don't know it, but the fact that they ignore it for all practical purposes is just as bad. I'm sure that they that they leave that out of many models when when it would be much better to have it in. I will definitely At grant the you least, that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to a question from Giannis, who asks, does modern technology impact how we think about different issues? It's a pretty, pretty I open-ended question. Yes, so, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know he's thinking not about, like, do we have access to more information than we used to? He's, he's talking about it, the actual way we think about concepts or um, the type of reasoning that we use. Um, yeah, I have a favorite example, for instance, Great, uh, which is the computation, so-called computational theory of mind. Ah, okay. Go so on. the computational theory of mind wouldn't be possible without computers. Uh, the analogy uh, between a brain and a computer is in, in ah, particularly I a digital see. computer. If we did not have digital computers, people wouldn't think about, about those, those, uh, along those lines. In fact, people did not think of the brain along those lines. Not only that, but perhaps more relevantly, there is some interesting literature uh, recently, that has started to point out some major, both quantitative and qualitative differences between digital computers and brains. Right. And so it's going to be an interesting uh, thing to see where that this analogy basically basically goes. goes. But you know, the, the reason so many people, so many neurobiologists these days think uh, and, and philosophers of mind think in terms of uh, the brain is a computational machine is because we have digital computers. Uh, we, we, before that, that sort of analogy it would have been a sort of a mechanical calculator, which you can argue it's a different kind of calculator, yes, but it has qualitatively different um, sort of setup. 
And of course, even before that, you wouldn't be able, before the invention of mechanical calculators, you wouldn't be able to think about brains at all in that, in that way. Sure. So that, that's a nice case study. Um, I think different, taking it in a different tack from the way most people usually, or at least the way I've seen people attack the, you know, is technology making us think differently question. The, the typical trope is, uh, you know, the, the, all of the different distractions online is reducing our attention span and right. it, it's making us ADD and, you know, the, the fast cutting. I'm sorry, I got of, distracted. What? <laughs> of course. Form and content on our show. <laughs> we yes. integrate them. Um, what was I saying? <laughs> See? It <laughs> worked. Unintentional. Um, right. Okay. Yes. So the, the, the response that I liked the best, um, on this issue was from Steven Pinker. This was just in a New York Times article a while back. He compared this idea, you know, the idea of, of technology impacting the way our minds actually work, to these magical beliefs that societies have always had, going back to prehistoric times, I think, that if you consume some substance, you take on the properties of that substance, which is why, for example, it's common folklore that if you eat, say, a tiger penis, you will become more virile. You know, they're like properties of this item that then get transferred to you. And so he, he was using this as an analogy for the way people think about how, well, if you consume media that has really you fast just cutting. Man- managed to put the word penis into the podcast, but go ahead. What? That yes. was a totally legitimate use. <laughs> Absolutely. I talked about bestiality on an earlier Q&A. That is true. I feel and you like I've already to agree that it's a good bro- idea. So, yes. I, I, no, that was not my argument. <laughs> I swear. Go anyway, <laughs> can't a girl make a point about tiger penises without being Absolutely. interrupted? Absolutely. Go ahead. So anyway, Stephen Pinker was saying that people are using the same kind of reasoning in the thinking that if we consume media, you know, MTV with all its fast, rapid cutting, that our brains will start to work the same way, you know, jumping right. in rapid cuts from one idea to another, which I thought was sort of a charming... Well, Wait, it is, comparison. except that it's wrong. Uh, meaning, <laughs> oh, you meaning think that, this effect actually happens? Yeah, there is actually a oh. mounting amount of empirical really? evidence that, that, uh, that, yes, the use of, of technologies, particularly things like uh, Facebook and, and, and similar, uh, that does, in fact, decrease attention span and oh, really? does, in fact, uh, decrease the ability of people to, to think um, uh, for sustained periods of time. Now, to what extent that is a problem, it's another matter. I'm not a... I'm not a um, I wonder yeah. also how lasting it is. Like if someone right. went without technology for a week even, would that Precisely. go away? That, that we don't know. The research in that area is actually at the beginning. And at any rate, you know, you can make the same argument for any technology. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Socrates famously complained about the invention of writing because he thought that that was going to decrease our memory. Oh, interesting. Okay? And it probably did. But, you know, guess yeah. what? Who cares? I got books. So if I forgot something, I can just look it up at the library. Yeah. Although... I was thinking about this with respect to technology because that also reduces our need to memorize things. We can look right. them up, you know, just like that. It's possible that there's this effect where if you have things in your mind, you connections might occur to you. You might make connections between them um, that you wouldn't think of, you know, if you had to look them up. So yes, it's, exactly. that would be a possible so, effect. It comes, so every technology, I think, comes with trade-offs. I mean, the, the, you can make easily an argument that some technologies do have... Uh, annoying side effects. Uh, you know, I, these days I, I cannot walk in, in, in on the sidewalks of uh, sidewalks of New York without bumping into some bubbling idiot who is just texting on his phone instead of looking where he was going. And I decided that as a matter of 
personal policy, I will not avoid those people. I would just bump into them hoping that their phone will fall on the ground. But <laughs> the thing is... You are the kind of New Yorker that people talk about when they talk about aggressive New Yorkers. That's, that's exactly right. That's me, the, the aggressive pedestrian. So, But there are obviously negative consequences to any kind of technology, and there are uh, advantages that are often unforeseen in the use of, of, of new technologies. So you can make, I think, the same argument for pretty much everything. And as usual with technology, it comes actually most of the times, with few exceptions, as a neutral thing. It, it depends on what you do, and it depends on how you evaluate the, the trade-offs. If you value memory, don't read books um, or don't write books. But if you are willing to trade off the, your personal memory for the availability of Google uh, Books, then by all means, I think you should switch to books. All right, let's, uh, for our last question of the Q&A, let's zoom out to a, a big picture question from Pure Luck, who asks, what do you believe the primary purpose of our species should be? For example, is it to create the best model of reality by meticulous study? Is it to spread life into the lifeless places in the universe? None. Do you- there, there is no primary purpose for our species. I mean, <laughs> the whole idea that species have a purpose is called teleonomy, and uh, you know it's and it's uh, been abandoned in biology for a long time. So we don't we don't have a purpose. Uh, if you're talking about a Can biological purpose, then then the yeah, answer is simple, obviously, right? Yes, yeah. go ahead and reproduce. But uh, failing that, I think that purpose is a human construct, and therefore we make up our purpose at the, at the individual level and the societal level as an aggregation of individuals. But you cannot point to any external uh, sort of source of, of reference and say, yeah, the purpose of the human race is to do this. Um, now, you can ask, those, you, can, you can consider those possibilities and ask yourself, would that be a good idea to put our resources in that direction? So, for instance, uh, is it a good idea for humankind to spread life into the lifeless places in the universe? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, we, could, we could talk about it as a societal level. And, you know, how much is that going to cost? And what, is, what advantages is that going to give us uh, directly or, or our descendants? And we may decide that that's actually a good thing to do. But I wouldn't call it a purpose. I would just call it a project. <laughs> well, that's very um, dissolving of you. <laughs> I mean, I... I agree. Um, I don't think the idea of a a purpose makes sense, except as something that you, that someone, some intentional entity chooses for himself or for an object. Um, but I, I want to quibble a little bit with your claim that um, that at least my interpretation of pure luck. Uh, of his question was was not that he thinks that there's some external purpose that was bestowed on humanity. He, I think he, he acknowledges that we have to choose our own purpose, but I think he thinks that there's a right answer to what purpose we should choose. Um, and I know that this is not an uncommon uh, viewpoint. I, I've talked to other That's people true. who feel like, and although usually they're talking about the individual level, not the society or the species wide level, usually they're talking about, you know, what is the purpose? What should the purpose of my life be? And these are not religious people who I'm talking to in these cases. Sure. They don't think that someone created a purpose for us. They're just like, they accept, I have to create my own purpose, but what should it be? I don't have any well, know, guidance. Right. In, that, in that sense, again, I go back to my virtue ethics position. I mean, I, my, my answer to that question is Aristotelian. It's whatever increases your flourishing. And your flourishing as an individual uh, can take different paths because it varies from individual to individual, from situation to situation, from circumstance to circumstance. But whatever makes your life, a happy life in the eudaimonic sense of your ancient Greek sense of, of happy, not just in the sense that you're feeling right now or good, you have a good feeling right now, but in the sense that 
you're going to look at your life, you know, when you get to the end, and Aristotle was, was uh, asking the question, well, when you get to the end of your life, you think this was a, you look back to it and say, you know, was this a good project? Was this a good thing? Did I use my time in a way that was satisfactory for me, that was doing something interesting, creative, uh, relevant to others, whatever it is? Uh, that seems to be mo- what most people want to do with their lives, unless they're psychopaths. Well, I just don't see how you could defend that as being the right answer, unless you're using it in the tautological sense of just, you know, whatever, pick the purpose. The right purpose is the one that at the end of your life you feel like was the right purpose for your life. No, I mean, no, no. How, so how would you defend that, that way of living as right about, over, say, someone who says the purpose of my life is just to have as much hedonic pleasure as possible, or someone right. who says the purpose of my life is to increase the utility of other people as much as possible, no matter how miserable I am. I mean, these all... You might feel more of an inclination towards one than the other, but how could you sort of prove that one was right and one was wrong? Right. So, well, I actually happen to have an answer to that question. It's, it's not really my answer. It's, it's John Stuart Mill's answer. Um, he said, um, it is better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. And if the fool or the pig out of a different opinion, it is because they only know their own side of the question. What? I've heard that before, but I don't... The philosopher doesn't know what it's like to be a pig. Oh, yeah. Socrates we can, we can, know what we can it's easily like roll in the mud. <laughs> no, try. but that's not being a pig. Come on now. <laughs> no, no, no. The idea is not to be literally a pig. No, he the doesn't know what it's is... like to be ignorant no, this and, is, this is and to matter... have no desire for wisdom and self-awareness. I mean... No, that's not the point of, uh, that Mill is trying to make. The, 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 the point he's trying to make is, if you, if, let's say that you want to decide on uh, you know, life, as, a, as a matter of lifelong decision, not as a matter of a, 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 on a day-to-day basis. Uh, should I just be spending my time drinking beer or should I, you know, read Shakespeare? The idea is that those are, those are what Mill would call a low pleasure and a high pleasure. And I, for Mill, both pleasures should be pursued. But in order to decide which one is more relevant to your life, you have to be the kind of person who actually can appreciate and experience both if you don't have a good appreciation of both, you cannot make that decision. And the idea is that, you know, if somebody's capable of reading Shakespeare, he's also capable of drinking a beer. But that doesn't go necessarily the other way around. I just don't think... I mean, the the pig wouldn't get anything out of reading Shakespeare, so it doesn't... You're taking the pig thing a little he, too literally. No, no, I think... We're, we're talking about a human being who is not capable of enjoying uh, what Mill would call higher pleasures. But Well, it sounded like he was making an argument that the philosopher was actually better off than the let's not say a pig let's just say like a a not very intelligent person who you know enjoys sensual pleasures but doesn't actually enjoy shakespeare um yes i do think in fact that a person who only is capable of enjoying um sensual pleasures and not more ratified pleasures no intellectual pleasures no music no art nothing like that is in fact having a lower level quality of life how could you it sounds like you you could only say that just by decree how could you possibly show that that were true i think that's actually a pretty good argument but i guess we're going to disagree on that one. okay all right we don't have we don't have time for socrates and the pig no. um we are out of time for this episode so that concludes another episode of rationally speaking join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. 
This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.